Now I would like to do something a bit different this morning. Uh, normally, when I teach, I teach expositorily. That is, I take a, a passage of scripture and try to say again what the author has said. And uh, for myself, I feel that's the safest course because uh, that way you're simply repeating what the inspired apostles and prophets have, have uh, told us. But uh, I want to change uh, tack a little bit this morning and, and deliver more of a theological sermon because there are a number of things that I want you to know about this particular subject. And uh, in order to stay even with our Sunday school classes and the material that's being taught there, we need to mark time for at least one Sunday and not go any further in chapter 3. Unfortunately, Schaefer takes, or at least the Sunday school material, takes seven weeks to cover the first three chapters of Genesis. So we lag behind a little bit in teaching through, uh, through these chapters. Now, this is not just a filler, but it is uh, a message designed to, to fill in some of the the, the uh, areas in your thinking uh, that uh, perhaps need to, be, uh, need to be underscored so that when we come back to chapter 3 of Genesis next week, you have a little, bit of, a little better understanding of that chapter. Now, the danger in this sort of message is that you might believe me, and I don't want you to do that. Uh, Luke said that there was something very noble about the Bereans in that they searched the scriptures to find out if those things were so and that those things were the things that the Apostle Paul taught. That is, they didn't even take the Apostle's word for what he said. They went back to the Old Testament scriptures to determine if he was right. And that's what I hope you'll do and not just, just take what I tell you as a result of my study and believe it. Uh, we shouldn't ever believe any, any man. There's no man who is our authority. Our authority is the Lord Jesus Christ and, and his word. And so I want you to check me out. So um, don't believe what I have to say unless it's taught in, in Scripture. Now we're going to talk this morning about the origin of evil and something of Satan's strategy and his tactics. And we'll be looking at a number of passages of, of Scripture in order to, uh, to understand that, that theme. When I was in the Army, uh, every payday in the evening after work, the blankets would come out on the floor and, and the dice would come out. And uh, a lot of the evening was spent gambling away your, your, your uh, check from the uh, previous, your pay for the previous two-week period. And one of the things that I observed about uh, watching that particular activity is that uh, shooting dice is a random sort of thing. Uh, you don't expect the dice to come up in any constant manner, and if it starts to, if seven start to show up with any degree of regularity, you begin to suspect that something is wrong with the dice. If someone uh, throws a seven, and then he throws another seven, and then another one, and another one, before long, someone's going to pick up the dice and look at them because they begin to suspect that there's something inherently wrong with that set of dice. They're loaded. Well, the same thing is true of man. You know, you can, you can go all over the world and you, you can look at every conceivable type of man from every background, every sort of culture, every society, all, uh, all uh, aspects of, uh, of life, and you find that uh, man is universally the same. He's predictable. There's nothing very random about his behavior. He sins. 
He may sin in different ways. He may sin in more violent ways in some other societies, but he still sins. He's basically self-centered, and that characteristic of man shows up time and time again. When we first moved to Idaho, uh, we were shopping for a house, and uh, we were looking at this the house that we finally bought over by Winstead Park, and one of the things that concerned me was that it backed up to the park. And in California, sure as anything, somebody would throw a rock through your window if you uh, backed up to a park. So I went around the neighborhood asking, asking them how they liked living in that particular spot. And I went over on Esquire, and there was an elderly gentleman working in his house, uh, on his garden out in front of his house. And I stopped and asked him uh, about the park, and he was very uh, pleased to live there. And I said, Do you ever, is there ever any vandalism in the park? Does anyone ever throw anything in your yard or destroy your fence? He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, we don't, delou- we don't allow that sort of thing in Idaho. <laughs> and uh, I appreciated his, uh, his optimism, and it, it's certainly a lot less of it occurs here. But, you know, I've discovered that in Idaho, just as in California, people are sinful. They may sin in different ways, but they're still sinful. And everywhere you go, that's a constant you can expect. Well, then that raises the question, what is it that's wrong with man? Why do men act that way? Why are they self-centered? Why are they careless of, of the needs of, of other people? Well, if you interview people in the secular world, you'll find a number of answers. If you talk to educators or psychologists or sociologists or anthropologists, they all have different answers. The problem is that man doesn't know enough or there's something wrong with his genetic structure or uh, he came out of the wrong environment or if if you talk to someone in an Eastern religion, it's just bad karma or whatever. But they have various explanations for what's wrong with man. The Bible says that man is sinful because sin entered into the world through one man. Now, that's the answer that we as Christians have to accept. If we accept that Jesus Christ is Lord, then we have to accept his view of Scripture. And he accepted the Scripture as authoritative, and the Scriptures tell us that there's something desperately wrong with man. He is sinful. He is self-centered. And the reason he is is because sin entered through one man. Paul says in Romans 5:12, Wherefore, is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed through the entire human race, and that all sin and die. Now, Paul's point is that, that everybody sins, and the result of sin is death, and the way you can know that everybody sins is that everybody dies. That's his argument. So uh, the Bible explains the cause of every human ill as a sinful tendency in man that he that derives originally from one man, Adam. But when we turn back to the book of Genesis and the story of Adam, uh, we discover that the Bible takes it back one step further. It doesn't make Adam the origin of sin. When God called Adam and Eve on the, on the carpet and he asked them uh, what, what they had done, Adam said, well, uh, Eve made me do it. She's the culprit. And it didn't stop there. Eve said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So she puts the blame on the serpent. And uh, it's obvious that the Lord himself sees the serpent as the ultimate culprit. He's the source of all evil in the world. So we begin to discover very early in the game that we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, and he's out to get us. He's out to destroy mankind. He's an evil, malicious killer. Jesus described him as a liar and a murderer. 
His goal is to murder and to destroy and blight and ruin human life. And the way he does it is by lying, as we'll see. He's the great deceiver. Now, you see, as Christians, we simply have to accept the fact that there is a personal devil. Uh, the Lord himself had a very sincere belief in Satan. And again, the issue is the lordship of Christ. I'm sure there are some Christians who don't believe in a personal devil. I've met them and talked to them. But sooner or later, you come down to the issue of Jesus' belief in a personal devil. And 29 times in the Gospels, Satan's name is mentioned. And 27 of those times, it's Jesus who, who brings the issue up. So the Lord believed in a personal enemy, a devil, Satan. And, uh, and, and we have to as well, if we acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, what you have in the Bible is a progressive revelation of the character of this enemy. We'll see uh, next week that he invaded the garden in the form of a serpent. Throughout the Old Testament, he's called Satan. In the, the first references to Satan, he's called the Satan. The word Satan means uh, an adversary, an enemy, someone who's against us. And, and initially he's called the adversary, but later that, that becomes his name, adversary, enemy. In the New Testament, he's called the devil. And given other names, descriptive names, he's called by Jesus Beelzebub. It's an interesting word. The first part of the word is the word that's found in the Old Testament for Baal, Baal, just means Lord. The second word, Zebub or Zebul, sometimes as it's found, means flies. So he's the Lord of the flies. He's the Lord of the dung heap, because that's where the flies were. He presides over the garbage dump. It's interesting that Jesus refers to hell as Gehenna. Instead of Hades, as uh, the apostles, uh, they, they use that term. Gehenna was a geographical location. It means, uh, the word means the valley of Hinnom. And it's a little valley just to the southwest of Jerusalem, which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. That's where they threw all of their, their garbage. They'd collect it during the night, and they'd throw it over the wall, and it would roll down into the valley. And sometime very early in the history of uh, that people, it had caught on fire, and it burned Constantly, a big cloud of smoke uh, always hung over the valley, and, and Jesus referred to hell as Gehenna, the garbage dump. It's a place of wasted lives where human lives are cast, you see, and ruined and destroyed. And, and Satan is, is Beelzebub. He's the Lord of the flies. He presides over the, a sort of cosmic garbage dump for, for wasted and ruined lives. But you see Satan perhaps in his... In his true intent, in his face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. Now, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, if you will. Everybody likes to read Revelation. Because there's so many strange, unexplainable things there that we wish somebody could explain to us, and I can't. But I want to read this section in chapter 12, Revelation 12, because it gives us an insight into the character of Satan. <clears throat> Revelation 12, 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, 
A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. The woman is very clearly Israel here. The, uh, the figures of the sun and the moon and the twelve stars correspond to Jacob's vision and thus identify the woman here as Israel. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. The devil here, as we're told later in the chapter, or pardon me, the dragon here, as we're told later in the chapter, is the devil, Satan. Verse 4, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. If you ever wondered if the devil has a tail, that's the verse that confirms it. I was reading this last week, and I, I remembered a story that I had forgotten about Billy Nichols, who was a Scottish evangelist. And he was preaching in the out of, outdoors one day, and he was being heckled by a man at the back of the crowd. And the man would say, hey, Billy, he said, how do you get your shirt over your wings? And he said it about three or four times, and Nichols just ignored him and went on preaching. And finally, the last time, he got really loud and and he was distracting everyone, and he said, Hey, Billy, how do you get your shirt over your wings? And Nichols said, I don't know. How do you get your pants over your tail? <laughs> this is obviously a, a symbol here for the dragon. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, probably a reference to the angels and the great rebellion that dragged a third of, of the angels with him and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days or three and a half years. Uh, this is a, is a uh, prediction also a, a historical description of Satan's activities to destroy the Messiah. The woman is Israel. She gave birth to Messiah. Satan wanted to devour the Messiah. He wanted to kill Jesus and destroy God's plan. And he's thwarted, as we see from this passage. And then we're told in verse 7 that there was a war in heaven and Michael and his angels cast Satan out. In verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. If you want an explanation for the hatred of the Jewish people over the years, this is it. This is why there's so much anti-Semitism. That's, uh, that's the strangest social phenomenon. Why should the world hate the Jewish people the way they do? This is why. Back of it is the dragon who wants to destroy the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's why there, there was a Hitler. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her on the desert. And then in verse 17, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we're told that when Jesus came, Satan pulled out all the stops. He, he wanted to destroy the man-child. He did everything he could. That's, what was, that's what's behind Herod's attempts to destroy the innocents, the, the destruction of all the little children in, uh, in Bethlehem. 
And that's what's behind Satan's attempt to insinuate his man into the apostolic band, Judas, and, and put Jesus to death, you see. But, of course, God overruled Satan. And he used Satan's attempt to thwart God's plan in order to bring redemption to the world. That's the remarkable thing about our Lord. He takes Satan's worst efforts and he just uses them for his own good. And then we're told that Satan went off to, uh, to make war against the offspring of the woman. That's, that's all of God's people, those who believe in his son. And he wants to frustrate and, and thwart them. So you see, all the way through the Bible, from beginning to end, you have a revelation of an enemy who's out to destroy us, and he, and he, knowing that his time is short from the time of Jesus on, he does everything he can to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the earth. Now let's talk a bit about his origin. This, you know, there's so much of Scripture that we simply do not know anything about. Um, it's mystery. And by mystery, we, we mean it's something that's not revealed. We would like to know everything about everything. In fact, people write books by that title, everything you want to know about whatever, but we're afraid to ask. And... Uh, and that's the way we are, and particularly about occult things. It's so fascinating. We want to know about the spiritual world. And that's, there's a spate of books coming out now on that subject, and everybody buys them because we want to know what's going on in the occult world. But the interesting thing to me about the Bible is that, is that the thing is handled so discreetly, and there isn't much told about Satan. We're not told how he began. We're not told where he began. We're only told what we need to know. Paul says that what we're told is what is necessary in order to be wise into salvation. That is to live out the life of God in the world. That's, that's all we need to know, and that's what God tells us. Now, for myself, I do not think that those passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, refer to the origin of Satan. I think they refer to the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre, respectively. That's just my opinion. There are many people who believe that, that, that those chapters do describe the origin of Satan. But I don't think so. God simply has not told us, but there are clues. In the first place, we know that Satan was a created being simply because there are no other uncreated beings except God. He created everything. So Satan is a created being. Secondly, he seems to be an angel. He's part of the angelic hierarchy, the head of of the bad angels uh, was created an angel who went bad who rebelled against God we, there are New Testament passages 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation the passage we just read that indicate that he rebelled against God and uh, drew other angels with him in his rebellion but that's about all we know we're told enough to know that Satan is a lesser being than God in other words, Christians are not dualistic. By dualistic, when, when people use that term, they mean that the universe is under the control of two equal powers, a good power and an evil power. And unfortunately, often Christianity is presented that way. That God is good and Satan is evil and there's a great battle going on and the outcome is very uncertain as to who's going to win. But that's not true. 
I remember as a little kid being uh, being told that the Christian life is like uh, well having two two dogs inside. You have a black dog and a white dog, and uh, whichever dog you say sick them to, that's the dog that wins. But that's not true. If you want the biblical picture of the of the of the battle, it, you'd have to represent the Lord Jesus as some great enormous lion, the biggest lion you can imagine. And Satan is like a, a, one of these little Mexican hairless, a little chihuahua, jumping up and down, yapping and making a lot of noise. And the lion puts up with it for a while. He says, all right, that's enough. And that's the end of it. Now, that's the picture that the Bible presents. That Satan may be the god of this world, and he's the prince of the power of this world, and he's the spirit that works in the, in the children of disobedience, and he's a formidable, powerful foe, but as far as God is concerned, he's just a pest. And God's going to put him away in his own time. He's letting him have his day right now, but it's temporary, and he's already been judged, and we don't have to be afraid of him. That's the point. I hate to use this illustration because I don't want you to fix the characters in your mind here, but I, I, I love to, to wrestle with my kids. I don't wrestle with the big ones anymore, but I love to wrestle with Joshua. And we get on the floor, and, and we wrestle, and, and he'll pin me. And then uh, I'll just, after a while, throw him off, and I'll pin him. See? Now, that's something of the nature of the battle. That, that sizes things up appropriately. God is not intimidated by Satan. He's not raging around the world having his way. And unfortunately, many of the books that are being written, and many I've listened to tapes of late, describe Satan in such, in such terms that we are absolutely intimidated by him. But we don't need to be. Things are under control. God is at peace. In the book of Revelation, his throne is described as, as being on a sea of glass. And as... There are no waves in heaven. God isn't pacing the floor and biting his fingernails and pulling his hair and wondering how it's all going to work out. He's in control. Now let's talk a bit about Satan's schemes. And I'd like for you to turn to Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after, have, after you have done everything to stand. Now, that puts it in perspective. We can stand. We do wrestle against principalities and powers. Our battle is not against people and circumstances and things. They're simply instruments that the, that the enemy uses. He's behind all the evil in the world, but we can stand against it. Let's talk first about his objective. I've divided this into three parts and used military terminology because it's, it's appropriate. We are in a battle. And in warfare, they talk about the objective, which is the goal to be achieved, and strategy, 
which is the, the general plan and tactics, the specific outworking of that plan. So let's look first at Satan's objective, and then his strategy, and finally his tactics. His objective is to be worshipped. Satan wants to be worshipped. He wants people to fall on their knees and bow down to him. And let me say, as an aside, any man who wants to be worshipped has played into Satan's hands. And any time we worship any man, we play into Satan's hands. When the apostles went to Lystra, they thought they were gods because they raised uh, a crippled man, healed a crippled man. And they fell on their knees and began to worship them. And, and Paul said, no, don't worship us. We're just men. Only God is worthy of worship. Angels are not worthy of worship. Only God. But Satan, you see, wants to be worshipped. It's very clear from Matthew 4, the story of temptation. It occurred right after the, the baptism of Jesus. The voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately we're told Jesus was driven out into the, into the wilderness. That's always been interesting to me that it was after the Father had said that the Son was pleasing to him that he was tempted, which ought to help us. Temptation does not come because of God's displeasure. Never. We can expect it even in the moments when, when, we, when, when we know that God is most pleased with us, as he was with the Son. He's driven out to be tempted. And Satan's first temptation is turn these stones into bread because Jesus had, had fasted for 40 days. Now, it's difficult from the statements that Satan makes to determine what he's after because Satan's uh, approaches to us are always devious and deceitful, but you can tell from Jesus' answer exactly what, what Satan was after because Jesus' response is, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that issues from the mouth of God. In other words, I'll let God meet my needs. I won't try on my own to meet my needs. Jesus could very well have turned the stones into bread. But he chose to let God meet his needs instead of, of doing that for himself, acting independently from God. Then Satan took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, cast yourself off. And Jesus said, no. No, I'll, we're not to test the Lord our God. He's not saying to Satan, don't you tempt the Lord your God. I'm God, don't tempt me. He's saying, he's quoting scripture to himself. We're not to test. We're not to put God to the test. We're not to force his hand. Satan was saying, do, it, do something spectacular so men will recognize who you are. You throw yourself off of the temple, the angels will bear you up and everyone will say, you're the Messiah. Jesus said, no. I'm not going to force God's hand. I'm going to let God reveal me at the proper time and in his way. I'll, I'll do it God's way instead of mine. I'll trust God instead of my own schemes and, and, and efforts. And finally, Satan shows his true character. He just becomes a, a, a sniveling beggar. He falls on his knees. He says, just worship me. Anything, I'll give you my kingdom. Just worship me. And Jesus says, no. No. The scriptures say, you shall serve the Lord your God and worship him. And so you see the cat's out of the bag. Now we know what Satan's after. He wants Jesus to worship him. And he wants us to worship him. That's his objective. 
God wants us to worship him and be controlled by his life. Satan wants us to worship him and be controlled by his philosophy. That's his objective. His strategy is to undermine our confidence in God. To erode away our belief that God knows what he's doing. See, what happens when we start distrusting God is not that we become neutral, but that we begin to trust Satan and his philosophy. Man was made to be mastered. He can never be autonomous, truly autonomous. Luther said we're like a beast of burden. We're made to be ridden. And, uh, you know, we, we think that, you know, that, that's not true. There are people over here who trust God, and there are people over here that are pawns of Satan, and there are people in here who are just kind of going it alone. But that's the lie. You can't, you can't do that. There's no neutral position. You're either controlled by God and you're worshiping him and you're believing him and you're trusting him or you're believing Satan and his philosophy. There are only two powers in the world. There's God and Satan. There's no neutral position. So you see, if Satan can erode away our belief, just get us to distrust God a little bit, then we start moving over into his camp and we start trusting ourselves and living for ourselves and we've played right into Satan's hands. That's what he wants. Wants to control us. And what I find is that Satan's attacks are never central. He doesn't come on like Mephistopheles in Dante's play, you know, with the curled mustache and everything else. Knock on your door and say, Here I am, I'm Satan, I'm going to tempt you. He slips in and he starts working out on the periphery to get me to disbelieve God out in the areas where, where I don't think it matters very much. For instance, uh, some of you ladies have husbands who need to be changed. There's no question about it. And so you start thinking, the right thing for me to do is just change my husband. And the best way to change anybody is just use words. Just start telling him where he needs to change. Shape him up here and there and elsewhere. Slip little messages to him. And, and he'll begin to improve. He'll be a better man for it. Just nag a little bit. And, you know, God says the way to change your husband is by your behavior, not your words. To be gentle, to be submissive, to be loving to him. But we think, uh-uh, that's not the way to do it. That takes too long. That, that isn't any fun at all. So... You start nagging, nag, 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 nag. You heard about the fellow who, who called his wife Peg, and somebody said, well, that, that's not her name. Her name is Sarah. He says, yeah, I know. He says, but Pegasus is short, or Peg is short for Pegasus. Pegasus was an immortal horse. That's the flying horse, Greek mythology. And an immortal horse is an everlasting nag, and that's Sarah. <laughs> So we resort to that sort of thing. And, and what's happened is that we have stopped believing God out on the periphery, out on the perimeter. We think we know more than God, and we played right into Satan's hands. Or we want a mate. It's God's will for me to have a partner in life. So we start making the rounds of the singles bars, because that's where you find a mate. Or we want to change the government, because the government needs to be changed, and so we rebel. In contrast to what Scripture says about submitting even to evil governments, we're going to do it our way. 
And what we've done is deny God at the perimeter of our lives. You see, it's very subtle. Slips up on us. We find ourselves thinking as Satan thinks. We've played right into his hands. Well, that's his strategy. To undermine our confidence in God, his tactics are twofold. He, first of all, influences us by direct possession. We know what his objective is to worship him. We know what his strategy is to undermine our confidence in God. And there are some some places where people have no confidence in God. And in those cases, he can directly possess a lot. He can control it by possessing it. There are a lot of places today where people no longer have any confidence, whatever, in God. They've stopped believing God. Places like India. They have a million gods, but they don't believe any of them. Hinduism is essentially atheistic, and that's where you find demon possessions rife today. Back uh, before Jesus in the Greek classical period, there, there was a great outburst of demon possession then because the Greeks, by their thought, had just done away with God. Socrates was demon-possessed. There's no question about it. The people at Delphi went to Delphi because there were, there were priestesses there who listened to the demons. And you, you tend to find that sort of thing happening where people have they've lost confidence completely in God. The prerequisite for possession, according to Scripture, is an empty house. In Matthew 12, Jesus describes the demon that leaves the man and comes back because the house is swept out and cleaned. Requires a receptive spirit. I don't believe, I'm convinced, that Satan never overwhelms believers who don't want to be overwhelmed. The only people who are possessed by demons are people who want to be. It's just that simple. I've had very little experience with this sort of thing. But what little experience I have had shows me that when it occurs, it occurs because somebody wants it. They ask for it. Just as God will not invade our personality, Satan can't invade our personality. We have to ask God to possess us. We have to open the door and invite him in. The same thing is true of Satan. The characteristics of demon possession are given to us in Scripture. And I list these because I want us not to confuse the activities of the flesh with demon possession. There are a lot of people today who are casting out demons of lust and fear and pride. And those things come from the flesh. That's not demon possession. Demon possession has very clear marks given to us in Scripture and authenticated by people that have seen this sort of thing time and time again. There are several characteristics. One is lewdness, filth, both physical uncleanness, mental and moral uncleanness, an outpouring of profanity and and filthy speech. That's why they're called unclean spirits, often associated with physical uncleanness. Secondly, superhuman strength and knowledge, like uh, the man who lived in the tombs, whom no one could uh, could chain. He'd break the chains and uh, escape. And always in, in these instances, there seems to be some evidence of superhuman knowledge, knowledge that one couldn't gain ordinarily. Or strength, physical strength. There's an indication of two personalities, two clear-cut, two or more clear-cut personalities. An aversion to truth whenever the gospel or the name of the Lord Jesus 
is evoked or scripture is quoted, there's usually a strong reaction. There's often a self-destructive tendency in, in, in the New Testament. We're told of people who cast themselves into the fire, or into the water, try to destroy themselves in various ways. And then often there's some physical impairment. They're dumb or they're, they can't speak or they're blind. Now, these, these characteristics are so clear-cut that uh, we need to be very cautious unless we see these things about attributing demon possession to anyone. It's easy to do, to blame possession for things that are manifestations of the flesh. And throughout the Gospels, the, the Lord's way of handling these situations was with a quiet word. Without histrionics, just quietly, he commanded the demons to come out. Um, that's the thing that astonished the Jews of Jesus' day. They said, but what authority? He commands the demons and they come out. They had exorcists in those day, but in that day, but they approached these demon-possessed people with so much dread and apprehension. What, what, what astonished them was that Jesus simply spoke a word. Quiet, he said, come out of them. And they came out. And it simply shows us again that demons are no threat to the Lord Jesus. He's in control. He has that sort of authority. So his strategy is first direct or overt through possession. And secondly, indirect through influence, satanic influence. We only have one enemy, and that's Satan. But he operates through two channels, the world and the flesh. The world and the flesh and the devil are not three enemies. There's only one. It's Satan. But he operates through the channels of the world and the flesh. Now, let me tell you what the flesh is. Because uh, I think many people think of the flesh as some, some evil thing inside of us that worms its way through our life and sends out signals and occasionally does us in. But the consistent use of that term in the New Testament is with reference to our humanity. It's what we are apart from God. That's the flesh. As you look at me and I look at you, I see a body, and bodies come in all shapes and sizes and colors. And they're just bodies, and they're animated by, by an immaterial part, which we call the soul. or It's called other things in Scripture, but it's the immaterial part of man. It's the part of you that makes you distinctive. I remember one, one of my kids once sitting on my chest, and I, have, I was lying on the floor pretending that I was asleep, and he pries open my eyelids, and he, he, he looks at me and he says, I know you're in there, Dad. And kids know that, that uh, we're more than just a body. We're both a body and, and an immaterial part. And that's our humanity. That's what we are. And that's the flesh. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, the flesh is used in a neutral context. The Bible refers to Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. That meant he was a human. He was God, but in human form. Other times the flesh is an evil principle, and when it's evil, it's because it's, it's our humanity lived in independence from God. And when Paul describes the works of the flesh, he's talking about what we're capable of as humans when we don't trust God. And you see, that's what Satan tries to get us to do, to trust our humanity, to believe in ourselves, to count on ourselves, to believe that our education is adequate, to solve the problems of our business, 
or to influence people uh, to change their lives? Or we feel that, that the answer is, is our physical strength, you know, and as young men we go to the gym and we work out so we can have 16-inch arms because somehow that's going to make us more powerful in the world. Or we, you know, whatever. The list of things we do is endless, but we just start counting on our humanity because we think that's what's going to change the world and that's what's going to change our circumstances and that's what will make our, our business effective and that's what will make our life powerful in others. And when we do that, we're believing what Satan tells us, that you can be godly without God. All you have to do is trust yourself. You know, people in Idaho have a, a sort of rugged independence, which is very attractive, really, you know. You, you have your own water systems and your own septic tanks and you go cut your own wood and you shoot your own meat and you just sort of, it's very easy to live in a little island so that you don't need anything. And it's kind of neat. But we need to watch it, that we don't let that carry over into our life to the point that we really feel we don't need God for anything. And we're adequate and strong in ourselves. Because when we do that, we bought Satan's line. We're believing him. We're trusting him. And, and we become his instruments. With the best of intentions, we become his instruments for evil. That, you know, Abraham is the classic example. God promised that through him the seed would come. And uh, Abraham just thought that he would help God out a little bit. And so he had another son who was Ishmael. And what he did is set God's program back. And apart from the grace of God, God's program would have been thwarted. But he thought he was doing a good thing. But you see, he was just acting out of his, his humanity, doing it himself. And that's what we all face. If you ever go to California, you go to San Francisco, you'll probably want to ride on a trolley car. And uh, they're sort of fun vehicles to ride on. And, and uh, when you get on them, the, uh, the uh, grip man grabs hold of a handle and he pulls that thing back. And underneath, a claw hooks onto the cable and away you go up to the top of the hill. And I've often thought when I rode those things, it's a great illustration of the Christian life because what God wants is for us to take a grip on him. He's the power of our life. He's the one we need to trust. If we want to reach our neighbors, we want to have an impact on the people in our office or in our school, or if we want to deal with a bad temper or whatever it is in our life, he's the source of power. And what God wants us to do is to trust him, to lay hold of him.